Welcome back to the Movie Bible Podcast. This week, you've got myself and Brennan as we attempt to break down the uh, top five of the box office, though that doesn't really exist, for the third or fourth week in a row. I kind of lost track of time at this point, uh, but we're here talking about movies. And just remember, as always, you can check us out online at moviebabblereviews.com. Uh, so there was sort of a box office release, if you can count it as that, uh, which was Trolls World Tour which about a month ago they announced that would be a release in theaters, uh, if there are any theaters left open, uh, but primarily on video on demand. And this morning, Universal is claiming that it's their biggest video on demand. Sorry, not their biggest, the biggest video on demand release uh, ever. But they haven't released any numbers for that. So I, I don't really know whether that's true or not. It's one of those things like with Netflix where they can claim that, oh, yeah, this is our, our busiest thing. So many people were watching this, but without any numbers, it's hard to really gauge how big this is. Um, it's certainly not going to be as large as a theater trip would be because you're not paying for individual tickets for everybody in the family, especially with a movie like this. It is going to be a lot of families, you know, probably three, four, five people uh, for your average family. Um, but at home, you're just paying the price to rent it. Uh, which I, I believe with these video on demand kind of hybrid releases they've been doing in the past month, those are normally running about $20. So you'll get a little bit more money than you would through like a typical video rental. But I still don't see how this is going to be a very big success, even if it is the largest video on demand release. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see numbers on this stuff. I think it's just kind of tough uh, to see numbers on this stuff. I don't know how I, I know there were actually a couple um uh, things that I, I saw in some of my local theaters, uh, they were starting to now do this thing called uh, at-home uh, movie releases. Uh, so, so we have some movies that come to the local theater here that aren't like big wide chain releases. And they actually did one the other day that was a $12 rental and you could have it for 72 hours. Uh, so that was kind of neat. Not a very popular film. I don't even remember the name of it. But just kind of pertaining to uh, Trolls World Tour here. I would love to see numbers on how it did because it, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see what the potential is with that market. And if they are claiming it's the biggest uh, record-breaking VOD release, I mean, I'd like to see the numbers, um, but it's probably something we're not going to see. But uh, it, it, it's definitely interesting, uh, to say the least. But I'd love to see some raw raw numbers on that. Yeah, I think we're in one of those show-me-the-car-facts scenarios where I can say it's easy to claim stuff, and I have no doubt that it probably was pretty successful. Um, you know, we're in, depending on where you're at in the country, where you're at in the world, you know, week three, four, five of quarantine. So I'm sure that people are kind of running out of physical media content because uh, people don't buy enough of that and are starting to just kind of hit the wall with streaming with stuff they've already seen before. And so I think Trolls weirdly comes at a time where we're all kind of nested in into quarantine and just thirsty for more content and so I, I think it probably was decently successful i mean the first movie uh was fairly successful um i think mainly because of that timberlake song at the end but it you know it still has somewhat of an audience and i think this will really work at home in the long run uh but i certainly don't think it's gonna make near what it would at the box office so the uh first trolls movie a few years ago as you said was successful it made 350 million at the box office 150 million in North America, but this one actually had a budget of about 30 million dollars less than uh, the first one. So I think that's a decent uh, start for this film, just to kind of get a, a kind of their first foot forward to try to 
cut costs maybe of what you'd lose because you're not putting it out um, into uh, theaters this time around. Um, but I think uh, the the thing is, and the reason it probably did so well on the VOD is that it, it's a film that it's definitely geared towards families. It's a younger children film. I mean, people got to entertain the kids in this time, and it might be tough now, weeks on end, of having them home. School's closed. Uh, so I think that's a lot of it. I think these kids' movies would be the ones that really uh, maximize the potential in terms of the VOD market. Yeah, and so I think it's weirdly smart to be doing what it's doing at this time, especially because it kind of jumped on board with the adaptive box office, I guess you can call it, um, pretty early on in the game. I think Onward was was the first major release to do so, and then you know you had the Invisible Man and, and some of those other releases. Uh, but Trolls was the first one to keep its release date and plant itself there, and I think they'll benefit from that pretty heavily in the long run, especially as word of mouth continues and as we're getting to a point, at least here in the states, where most states are looking at re-upping their quarantines or their stay-at-home orders um, for a, another couple weeks, another month or so. And so I think Trolls will, will have a small victory in a time when the box office isn't seeing many victories at all. Yeah, and you know what's neat? Um, numbers came out actually uh, also for its box office numbers, because as you said, it's a day and date type thing, and it was going to get released on VOD and theaters. But we know that pretty much all theaters are shut down. It actually did make um, $40,000 uh, at the box office over the weekend in North America. And that is attributed from 10 drive-in theaters across the U.S. So that's kind of a neat way to look at it. And I, I'd love to go to a drive-in uh, during this. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting. Um, you know, I also would be a little paranoid just because you're still in proximity to so many people. Um, but it's it's definitely kind of a, a drive-in type of climate. And I think, you know, the interesting thing will be when we're at a point again where theaters can reopen here in the next month or two, uh, we don't really have any releases until July. So I think we're at an interesting point where, you know, we could see like a lot of classics come back to the big screen maybe, or I know like in China, the Avengers movies are coming to the big screen. Um, so I'm interested to see how theaters work <laughs> when there aren't any movies releasing, but theaters need to get at least some people in the door. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome to see some uh, classic films come back to try to reignite things when everything comes back but that's pretty neat i think uh, 40 grand uh, over the weekend at, at just drive-in theaters purely so that's pretty cool for trolls world tour um also i don't know if you know i mean i don't know if, if you've been to a drive-in recently i i know i i haven't in a while but i know that there are somewhere um they're hooked up to like a radio station and instead of even bringing down the car window you can just adjust it to the station yeah i think the last movie i saw to drive in was furious seven <laughs> okay um yeah a lot of them will have like you can you can pull up the radio station or they'll have the little radio boxes you know, i've always been a little bit more of a fan of the radio box just because you're not leaving your car on for a couple hours but honestly really mm -hmm. when Good i go point. to the drive-in i don't really plan on watching the movie all that much just because normally you'll go with a group of people and everybody's talking and just kind of hanging out mm -hmm. uh, which is a horrible way to watch a movie but it's a it's a fun experience overall <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and also, just before we kind of leave the Trolls talk, they were suggesting that if even about 10 million people do end up renting this movie, they are going to be able to make $200 million in revenue off it. So I think that's a, a good goal for them to shoot at. But 
as we've said many times already, we don't know the figures for sure of how many people are, are renting. But I think that's out of uh, everyone in, in the United States and, and just kind of in the markets where this is on VOD, I think that's a good spot to aim at 10 million people. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, again, it's like you said, it's hard to, to really know what this looks like without specific numbers, um, which kind of takes us into our next topic, which is the company that loves to put out very unspecific uh, claims, which is Netflix. Uh, so they've been posting their top 10 streaming movies and TV shows the past few months. Um, so we're just going to kind of run through those a little bit. There were a few on here that surprised me um, that I just when we get towards the end of the list, I was not expecting these movies to be on the top 10 list at all, but they are. Um, <laughs> so uh, the number one streamed movie on Netflix this past week was Code 8, which is kind of the Robbie Amell, Stephen Amell dream project, uh, followed by Angel Has Fallen, the number two spot. Number three was Love Wedding Repeat. Number four, Hop. Five, The Main Event. Number six was Coffee and Kareem. Seven was LA Originals. Eight is Molly's Game. Nine, and this is the one that surprised me the most, is The Last Airbender. <laughs> and ten is The Hangover. Um, so we'll just start with number one. Um, so with Code 8, I think this is Stephen Amell's first big post-Arrow event. Um, and this is something that he and his cousin Robbie Amell worked on a short, I believe, last year or two years ago. And then have just been trying to get this movie made and the short took off enough that they were able to finally get it made. And, you know, I haven't really heard a ton about it. Um, I'll probably check it out at some point just because I do like Stephen Amell um, just as an actor and as a, as a person. Um, I love some of the podcasts I've heard him on, um, but that is, is the number one spot. I don't know if you've had a chance to check it out at all. Uh, no, I don't, I don't hundred percent know if it's on here actually right now. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see it on here right now. On the Canadian ah. one. Gotcha. Um, and then number two is Angel Has Fallen, uh, which came out last September, I believe. Uh, the third movie in the Has Fallen franchise uh, was pretty panned, but it seems like a good Netflix movie. So I'm not surprised to see it succeeding on the platform. And then uh, Hop was kind of one that I expected just because it was Easter weekend. Uh, so, of course, more people are going to be watching Easter movies. Um, and then Coffee and Kareem was kind of a new release that I've heard nothing positive about. Um, I've I've heard comments that I can't believe I watched this. I just lost brain cells. Um, <laughs> so I, I have very low expectations for that movie. Uh, my favorite thing about this top 10 list, though, is that Molly's Game is at number eight. And instead of using Jessica Chastain, who plays the titular Molly, the cover photo for this movie is a close-up of Michael Sarah. And I just think that's that's wonderful. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, it's odd. <laughs> and then the last Airbender, I just I don't understand because this movie has been on Netflix forever, so it's not like it's a it's a new Netflix release. Um, I th I think it's kind of moved in and out of the catalog, but this movie has pretty regularly been on the platform since 2010, because uh, I, I remember like it's always been an option. Um, so I'm kind of surprised to see it jump back up, especially because nobody really likes this movie. Um, all the fans of the TV show absolutely loathe this movie, um, and nobody has really, in, in my experience, latched onto it. But for some reason, it is peaking this week. 
Yeah, it's odd. I mean, that's another odd thing. I, I don't think there's a hidden uh, fan base out there or anything like that, but uh, it's definitely a peculiar uh, scenario. And uh, seeing the hangover at number 10 doesn't really surprise me. Um, you know, this is, I think it's prime comedy time at a time where everything in the world seems pretty uncertain. And the hangover, it, I mean, has been pretty wildly successful the past 11 years. Um, I don't don't think its influence is going away anytime soon. Yeah, no, that's that's one that I mean, that's that it's something that people can just pop on and have a good time with. So I I agree with you there. All right, and that wraps up Netflix's top ten. Um, again, we don't really have specific numbers for how many people are watching any of these things. We just have what Netflix gives us. Uh, I'm pretty sure the new episode of Tiger King probably dwarfed most of them, anyways. <laughs> Um, but with that, we have a special topic for this week, um, and this is a shower thought that I had this morning, and that's the fact that every movie with the word rise in the title is the worst in its respective trilogy. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about four movies that fit this. Um, these were the four movies that I could find that were part of a trilogy of some kind, um, even if they're not like the original trilogy in the case of two of these franchises we're going to talk about. Um, they are the third in their respective trilogy, and they are the worst movie. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start off with probably the most agreeable franchise in this uh, group that we'll talk about, and that's going to be Terminator. I don't think there are many people that would disagree with the fact that Rise of the Machines is the worst of the original Terminator trilogy. Um, it knocked the rating down to PG-13, which is just bizarre. The CGI in it somehow looks worse than it did in <laughs> Terminator 2, which was almost a decade earlier, uh, actually over a decade earlier, and this movie just doesn't work. It, it's a bad movie. Um, there's, there are very few redeemable qualities about the Terminator movies after Terminator 2, and uh, I mean, Machines definitely isn't the worst, especially within the past few years, uh, but it's certainly a big step down from the first two. Yeah, and actually, um, before we go any further i think that one yeah i think i thought that one stayed R. I thought it was salvation where they first knocked it down to pg-13 or, or was it rise with the machines uh i believe it was rise because i i be... just i really remember one really gory scene in rise that uh um I, that sticks out of my head where she the uh tx stuck her hand through the uh, detective who was driving and she started steering the car with her hand i remember that i, I thought that was a pretty questionable scene so i, I don't know but I, I will agree though no it, it's by far the worst i mean you can't you can't even dispute that uh, i don't think there are many rides of the machine stands out there i mean terminator one is a, is a classic just it's such a unique movie the just the the, the idea behind it and the plot it's a very unique film very fun to watch it. It is a little cheesy now looking back the original Terminator, but for its time, it's great. And it's, it is still a very enjoyable movie. And then you got Terminator two, which is just one of the like top action films of all time. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful movie that had heart as well. Um, those first two films are just fantastic. And this one's a step down. I would still watch rise of the machines for fun if I was really bored, but you know, it's, it's not, I, I wouldn't go out of my way to check it out. Yeah, uh, you you were correct. I stand corrected. This was still a rated R movie, um, but I was only mistaken on that part. I stand by everything else about it not being as as solid of a film as the first two. Um, and I think part of the 
cause of that is the fact that Linda Hamilton was no longer involved with this movie because she was done with the character. It was somewhat of a fight to get Arnold back on board. This was right before he started his political career. Um, so it just kind of came at a weird time for the franchise as well. Um, and then, yeah, it does feel a little bit cheesier than the first two. Cause I mean, the first one is, is almost straight horror. Um, it's, it's just <laughs> Linda Hamilton and Arnold just, scaring the shit out of each other really um but the second one is like you said again one of the most definitive action movies of all time i mean sarah connor um is an awesome character in that movie and then the weight is just kind of left on john connor in the third movie uh but played by a different actor and, and i think the plot is a little bit more convoluted um and kind of indicative of what the plot of the last few transformer movie or transformer uh terminator movies have been like yeah no i agree i think that it's just a huge step down and it, it wasn't necessary but they were really trying to make a quick buck for sure and it's noticeable i i still prefer it to um the uh i think four and five uh personally i think uh genesis is or genesis whatever it is is that came out in 2015 i think that one's the worst in them all um i I don't remember salvation too well just trying to think back on it and even the one that came out just a few uh, months ago i remember going to see it but oh my god uh, the name has blanked me do you you remember what it was called dark fate (laughs) yeah that's right dark fate dark fate was not good either but i didn't hate it like it's a all right movie but not a great Terminator movie. So uh, Rise of the Machines might be the worst of the uh, original trilogy there, but it, I, I think it, 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 it might not be the worst of them all, but still, it's not a, not a great movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's certainly much more watchable than Genesis or Dark Fate. And kind of like you, I don't remember Salvation as much. Um, I mainly remember the arcade game for, for yeah, some yeah, odd reason. Yeah. It's everywhere. Um, but yeah, I think I think if you're looking at just the original trilogy, then yeah, it's it's the worst one. And right. then we'll we'll move on from Terminator, which is probably going to be the most agreeable uh, statement I will make. Um, and we'll move on to the Dark Knight Rises, uh, which is part of the Dark Knight trilogy. And I think in this one, pretty much the entire planet is on board with the fact that the Dark Knight is the best one. But you see a lot of people that will really take a stand against either Batman Begins or The Dark Knight Rises. And I could understand that either way. I think all three of these movies are exceptional in their own right. Um, I think they're very different, especially if you look at Batman Begins compared to the the latter two. Um, but even The Dark Knight Rises is a much different movie than The Dark Knight. Um, and for me, it's just it's a little bit slower. Um, I think it's a little bit crammed with characters. I think Nolan plays everybody off of each other very well but it just doesn't have that momentum and that punch that the dark knight had no i agree like there's there's a little bit of a little bit of the mojo that's missing in in the dark knight rises i personally like batman begins a little bit more um so i would agree with this statement as well for this uh trilogy um the dark knight is is just a perfect film but i think batman begins is fantastic i think the dark knight rises is really good um, but it, it, for me, it's just slightly the worst of the three. Um, but no, it, I, I think it still looks gorgeous. Great score. You have, you have great set pieces. And I love the way the film is shot. Um, and I, I just love the aesthetic of The Dark Knight Rises. I think the most of all three. However, you're right. There's, there's something missing there um, just with the flow of this film. It's not, for me, I don't see it as to being too much of a slow, slow movie. But there's just something there that 
it, it doesn't feel as coherent as The Dark Knight, and it's slightly noticeable. And you're right, despite it being two hours and 45 minutes, it does feel very stuffed. Um, there, there's enough payoff there for me to kind of acknowledge it as a really good end to a trilogy, but it's uh, probably, for me as well, slightly uh, the worst. Yeah, and I think it has a lot of pretty iconic moments. Um, I think Bane has been memed a lot, um, but a lot of his material there is is pretty solid. And I, I like um, the arc that Bruce Wayne goes on, uh, but you do kind of have like Alfred, who's just like kind of there for half the movie and then extremely not there for the other half of the movie. And Miranda Tate, um, as she goes by for a good chunk of the movie, um, is also kind of in that weird bubble. Um that was my first exposure to Ben Mendelsohn, so I'll always appreciate the movie for that, uh, just because he is the best villain of the 2010s. Not not that character specifically, but just that actor. Um, but other than that, I'd say, yeah, Dark Knight Rises is definitely the worst of the trilogy. For sure. And so with that, we will move on to the next trilogy, um, where this one is very similar for me, and I think you'll agree. Uh, we both have a a certain fondness for this trilogy um, where I don't think any three of these movies are bad, but I think there's one that just it's different than the other two. And so therefore it's the worst, uh, which is rise of the planet of the apes. That's the 2011 movie with James Franco in the lead. Um, This one has the least Caesar in it um, just because it's about his evolution and, and just it, it takes a while for him to get to the point where we see him in the other two movies um, and I, I still think this movie is phenomenal, um, especially compared to the latter half of the original Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, but within context of, of Dawn and War, uh, War being within my top 10 favorite movies of all time, I just I don't think Rise tonally works as well. I think it's a lot almost more adventure um, and a lot more lighthearted and whimsical. It's, it's not an incredibly lighthearted movie overall, but especially compared to how dark uh, Matt Reeves takes the second two. It just it just feels off. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. For me personally, my I, I really I just had this strong connection to Rise because I remember it, it's probably my most watched movie. I think either that or Jurassic Park or uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. I, those three are like my three most watched movies. So I have this connection to rise but i i will agree I, for me i have rise and dawn as almost even um i just i i think that you're completely right when when you talk about the tonal differences uh in dawn and war matt reeves came in and rupert wyatt did a great job directing rise but i think a lot of what's great in rise is just uh, the screenplay and um kind of the twists and turns the movie takes and i think that that keeps it very entertaining and engaging but the direction from Matt Reeves and Dawn and War is really on another level. And he, he has a vision for this franchise that I don't know Rupert Wyatt would have would have seen through if he was the one that carried it on. So I, I appreciate that Matt Reeves came in and uh, did a great job with Dawn. And then War is just a, a fantastic film. Um, I love it so much. But Rise is, uh, is one that I, I like Rise because there's so many moments in there that I think are iconic. I think there's the one scene, obviously, with uh, Tom Felton uh, and, and Caesar in the pen when Caesar finally uh, says no. I think that's probably the most iconic of the trilogy. So for me, Rise almost ekes out Dawn. But I can agree with you because I think for the general public, Dawn is uh, Dawn and War are definitely above uh, Rise for sure. Yeah, and I think part of it is 
this movie had to come out for people to take the franchise very seriously again. And so when we did get to Dawn in 2014, I think audiences were a little bit more ready for it. And I mean, Dawn just was a much larger movie. It's the largest uh, financially of the three. And so I, I think that's part of it too, is, is this movie had a lot of work to do because it had to kind of take us back to the original, but also set a new tone for the franchise. And again, I think this movie's phenomenal. I think they're all very close in quality. Uh, but for me, it's just kind of these little total differences and, and little origin story differences that put it just a little bit behind. It's funny that you mentioned that uh, because you're right. I think with with after what happened with uh, Burton's 2001 remake, which really was critically panned and audiences didn't really take a liking to it. Um, and then obviously the, the original five films, uh, the first one's uh, like a classic, but the rest are kind of take it or leave it. So you had like like they needed this movie to to really turn turn people around and change minds change hearts and minds towards this franchise and when it came out in 2011 it was really doubted that's why when you go back and and try to look at archives in 2011 and look up things online and look at kind of these surprise movies of 2011 or movies that people didn't think were going to be all that great rise usually tops all those lists and it's kind of one of those films that people thought was going to be another crappy summer movie. And it turned out being a fantastic summer blockbuster back in 2011. But you're right. There was definitely a short leash. It, it's only an hour and 45 minutes compared to the other two, which are over two hours. Um, so you're right. It, it had a lot of work to do, but uh, I appreciate it nonetheless. And I think it was smart because James Franco, I think, carried this movie, at least going into it, a lot more than people really uh, give him credit for at this point. I mean, these were these were peak James Franco years. I mean, just done our 127 hours. Um, he was doing Oz, the Great and Powerful, a couple years after. Um, this was tail end of the Spider-Man trilogy. Um, so I think he really got people in the door at this point in time. And then mm -hmm. uh, just the quality of the movie is the reason why we have Dawn and War. Um, so yeah, this movie rocks. <laughs> um, and so we'll move on to our final trilogy. Uh, with the word rise in the title, which uh, we're going to talk about one of my least favorite movies ever. Um, so <laughs> I'm excited about that. <laughs> um, and that is the Star Wars sequel trilogy. I think this one is going to be the most overall divisive um, just between us and anybody listening, uh, because there are some poor souls out there who think Rise of Skywalker is a good movie. But yeah, I think Rise of Skywalker is not just the worst movie in the sequel trilogy. I think it's the worst movie in the entire franchise. And I know you and I differ on that just a little bit, but um, like this movie is just a mess. It's just people running from one side of the screen to the next shouting, and I, I hate it so much. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't hate the movie, but I, I don't love it by any means, and I don't really think it's all that great. I think there are good moments in it. I think there are bad moments in it. I think overall it's an incoherent film. Um, but for me, it's at the bottom end way at the bottom end of the uh, 11 total Star Wars feature films, live action that we've gotten. Um, and even out of the nine Star Wars saga films, it's probably not quite the worst one, but I think I'd put it probably at the second worst. So I, I really don't like the movie that much at all, but I, I don't hate it. I know there's, I mean, we're seeing now this divide where there's a lot of people that really hate the film. And then there's a lot of, not a lot, but there, there's a loud vocal minority that love the film. And we're starting to see that more a few months out. The discourse is not like it was for Last Jedi at all, but it's still um, it's still present. And I don't I wouldn't um, put myself in either of the camps. I think it's an okay movie, but 
really when you when you hold it up to the history of Star Wars and when you hold it up to what it had to do, I think it failed. It didn't meet its mark. But uh, I, I would I wouldn't call it a terrible movie, uh, personally. But it is out of the the sequel trilogy. Your um, hypothesis still stands here. It's the worst out of the three, and it's not even close. Yeah, and I think for me to to sum up how I feel about this movie. I will reference uh, one of your and I's favorite movies of all time. That's Jurassic Park. And there's a scene where uh, Ian Malcolm is like tapping at the camera, making fun of John Hammond for the fact that none of the dinosaurs will show up. And John Hammond just gives an old man sigh and is like, I really hate that man. And that's how <laughs> I feel about the rise of Skywalker. I'm just, <laughs> I'm tired of it. I, I just, it makes me sad. I don't want to think about it anymore. <laughs> well, we can uh, wrap it up from there then. I mean, uh, <laughs> don't have to go into it too much more. Um, yeah. So with that, we'll uh, just dive into a little discussion about what we've been watching lately. Um, so I, uh, continuing on the Star Wars kick, have been watching through the Star Wars saga again. So unfortunately, I will be watching The Rise of Skywalker at some point this week uh, from the comfort of my own home. Uh, we'll see if I feel any different about it. I don't expect it, but I'm a I'm a completionist, and in that sense, you know, it exists. If I'm going to watch the Star Wars saga, I got to watch it all the way through, no matter how much I disagree with it. Um, but I've been been doing that last week, uh, this past week, because I went through a a Kurosawa binge uh, the week before, and you know, especially as you get kind of into more of his action-packed films, you see a lot of the influence of Star Wars, and I, I finished The Hidden Fortress, and I was like, man, I gotta I gotta jump into Lucas. And uh, so, yeah, I've been watching Star Wars. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's, it's good to kind of uh, not rediscover it, because you know it so well, but just every so often. I think you say, what, every, every year you watch it, right? Yeah, normally about once a year. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a good time. Um, for me, personally, I haven't been diving into too much uh, uh, great stuff but after this pod ends i think i'm going to be jumping on uh finally uh, last week i said i would do it but finally i think uh, right after this pod ends i'm going to be checking out the meyerwood stories with uh, adam sandler and ben stiller dustin hoffman it's the uh, noah bomback film from 2017 um i've been looking forward to that nick's a big fan of it um onward is one that i still haven't gotten around to seeing but i think probably tonight or tomorrow i'll be finally watching onward but i will say a franchise that I'm uh, going through right now with my sister, who's a little bit younger than me, and she loved it as a kid. I remember as a kid, I hated it. It was so funny. I remember <laughs> uh, the, um, finally watching the Twilight franchise. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know what? It's it, it's made out to be like like some of the worst worst stuff out there. But looking back on it now, Robert Pattinson is someone that we're so fond of now that watching it now it's not as bad because I, I like watching him on screen. It's just funny. Um, the movies are still corny, dry dialogues, awful, but there's just this iconic feel about it. This twilight feel. Cause I remember that just that, that tween, um, sensation that it was like a 10 years ago. So I remember as a kid, I watched bits and pieces, but this is, this is finally me sitting down and uh, watching twilight. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I know I've seen the first one, and I'm pretty sure I've seen the second one. Um, I lost a bet in middle school and had to read the books, uh, which was not as excruciating as the movies from what I understand. But I, I don't know if I've seen the last three. 
what yeah there's five twilight movies yeah uh yeah i i think quarantine would have to go on for a while before i'd be brave enough to to dive into that yeah um i mean like i'm like i don't know it's it's i gotta i'm trying to find something to do and she you know she's a big fan still not a big fan but she's kind of rediscovering him it's funny because as a kid she loved them and now she's kind of watching them now cringing a little bit at what what's going on but she's still enjoying it and i think that it's a good way for me to balance out my letterbox ratio as well <laughs> yeah I, I think so <laughs> yeah i know that's a that's a problem for me is lately i've been watching a lot of movies that um are like regarded as classics or like the top tier and i mean there are no movies like new movies coming out so i'm not really watching as many terrible movies so i know my uh my bell curve on letterbox is going to be off yeah, it's it's tough. It happens, but I mean, we got a lot of time now to just watch watch movies. So, yeah. <laughs> so that pretty much wraps up this week's episode of the Movie Babble podcast. Again, you can always check us out online at moviebabblereviews dot com. And next week we'll be back talking about uh, what movies we're watching. Uh, I'll probably hate on the Rise of Skywalker just a little bit more, having seen it again. Um, and we'll we'll see you then. <laughs>